so lastly, what I want to do right now is we're going to transition to uh, the idea that we are engaging in right now called Holy Week. In fact, I'm going to have you all stand and we're going to read scripture together. Uh, so as you guys are standing, if you would like, why don't you open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, Gospel of Luke 19. Um, today begins what we're what we call Holy Week, what others have called Holy Week. Other traditions might call it Passion Week. Uh, if you guys don't have a Bible, once you raise a hand, we would love to get you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, keep this. It's our gift to you guys. We want to make sure that you guys have the scripture. Um, and uh, this is an opportunity for us to begin to engage in the final sequence of events of Jesus' life, coming up to the point of his betrayal, his uh trial, his crucifixion, his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection, which next week we celebrate. We call that, you know, Easter or Resurrection Sunday. But what I want to do right now is I want to pause before we even just jump into the scripture. And I want to specifically pray because next week, I have said this before, that Easter, Resurrection Sunday, is basically the Super Bowl of Christian holidays. It is the most important, most significant of all holidays that we celebrate because, uh, as we will look at next week, it literally marks a transition, a pivot of humanity that is and has been defined by death. And what Jesus does on that particular day, which we will celebrate next week, is turns everything inside out, creates a new way forward for us to engage and to live and to be human. Um, and it's so significant, so important. That's why we make a big deal out of it. So what I want to invite you to think about right now is what I want to pray before we jump into scripture is I want you to think about who are some people that you maybe can invite or that you should prayerfully consider inviting to come. Might be a neighbor, family member, someone that might have been engaged in following Jesus at some point in their life, but now they've been disengaged. Maybe they were once churched, now they're unchurched. Maybe they were once on fire for Jesus, but now they're more agnostic or atheistic. Um, this is an opportunity maybe for you to think about who are people in your life right now that maybe God might be nudging you to pray for. I'm going to pray specifically. So uh, think of a name or a few names. You got, you got those names in your head? I'm going to give you a second. Raise your hand as soon as you think of a name. I'm going to pray specifically for that person. I don't know their name, but you do. So you're going to fill in the blank. But I want to pray right now that God would give you an opportunity and also to our online crew. Um, maybe some of you all have been just engaged online for this duration of time, this is an opportunity maybe for you to come to gather with us. Again, we realize that some might still need to be socially distanced or you're still at a high risk, so still remain home. We're still going to be continuing to broadcast online as well. But for some, um, and I've talked with many as well, that they've just gotten used to being comfortable at home, which is fine, no big deal. Um, it's an invitation for you to maybe move out of the comfort of your home and to engage. Maybe Easter Sunday is the beginning of something new for you that has been not a part of your normal habit for the past, you know, nine months, a year or so. We want to invite you to come and join and be part of the happenings here on Sunday morning, if you feel safe. If not, 
still remain at home. So I want to pray right now specifically for the person or people that you have in your mind that at some point this week, you will make a phone call, you'll send an email, you'll text, you'll call up, you'll show up on the doorstep. Um, don't be creepy. Um, but as a way of inviting them to join you to come to church next week to hear about the good news about a God that makes all things new. So let me pray. Jesus, even now we come to you and we ask you that you would just, first of all, do great things this week in our lives, in our hearts, in a renewed understanding of this message. And God, I pray that you would help us to be able to have boldness. Maybe for some of us, we, we might need encouragement, boldness, strength, ability, um, to be able to invite. God, I pray for those that may be coming to our mind right now, whether it be a family member, a child, a mother, a parent, family member that might be distant from us, a neighbor, God, whoever it is, you know the names of each and every person that's coming to mind right now. And I pray that you would begin to nudge them to move them from a state of anxiety or a life filled with meaninglessness to begin to have desire to know who you are. And God, I pray that you would bring them here next week. That not only would they just be here present, but emotionally and spiritually, God, that their hearts would open. God, there's things that we can do, things that we can create space for, but ultimately at the end of the day, there's only things that you alone can do, which is save a person's soul. So we ask you, Father, as we partner with you and we do that work of invitation and communicating and communication, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do, which is bring dead people to life, bring apathetic people to a state of excitement, bring people, God, that are filled with anxiety to a state of peace. Only you can do this. So we trust it in your hands. So be with us now, this morning, as we engage with your word and with the story of the gospel, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. All right. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read a little passage of scripture. In fact, two of them. In fact, hopefully you have your finger opened in Luke chapter 19. Um, I'm going to give you another, like, 10 seconds. Open up, find, you might need a little bit of help with this one, Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah 9. I'll give you a hint. It's the Old Testament. So go ahead and find Zechariah 9. If you need to use the table of contents, it's totally fine. Never, ever, ever any guilt or shame with that. That's fine. It's a hard one to find. Zechariah 9. So Zechariah 9, 9, and then Luke chapter 19. So you guys there? Raise your hand if you're already there. Man, you guys are good. All right, here we go. I'm going to start with Zechariah 9, and then I'm going to go forward to the Luke passage, and then we're going to jump in. Uh, while you're opening, I'm going to give you one other little freebie. Um, in kind of a collaboration with what we're doing here on Sunday morning, uh, I have a handful of people ask, are we going to be doing a Good Friday service um, this year? No, we're actually not going to be doing a Good Friday service, but what we will be providing is every single day, I've kind of uh, had this passion, desire in my heart for a long time to kind of create a series of like little devotionals every single day. You can call this my, my passion project. Come on, that's a good one. It's a good one. It's my passion project. So every day this week, I'm providing a little, little teaching between four minutes to eight minutes. The one that dropped today is actually nine minutes. So I 
a little bit light already, but um, between four to eight minutes, it'll go up on our Instagram as well as our Facebook. Uh, it's a little uh, audio for you to just kind of engage with. It's a meditation. The big idea behind it is for you to engage with the scripture, engage with some thoughts and ideas of how to wrestle with the text and think through these things, but ultimately to bring you to a place of, of praying, considering we're following kind of a an acronym that's known as PRAY. The P stands for pausing and reflecting upon God's goodness. The R stands for uh, wrestling or looking at, think no, the R. I think wrestling is a W, but uh, R is, um, I, I can't even remember what the R is. You have to listen to the thing. Um, but the idea is like engaging with the scripture. That's the R. Uh, the A is asking God, so we will kind of move it into a place of pray. And the Y is yield. What is it that Jesus is asking of us to yield of our lives over to him every day? First one started today. You can check it out. Tomorrow morning, they'll be up by 7 o'clock every morning. Um, it's been something I've been really excited about working on every single day. Hopefully it will be a blessing to you. If it is a blessing to you, uh, share it with others. All right. With that, let's jump in, read Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, and then we will jump in. The scripture teaches this rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a colt, a foal of a donkey. Skip forward to Luke chapter 19, and then we will jump in. Luke chapter 19, verses 35 uh, through verse 44. Uh, Jesus has kind of um, consigned his followers to go prepare this donkey and, uh, that he's going to walk into with his group of friends into the city of Jerusalem, but he will be on the back of this donkey. Now we pick it up right in that very moment where it says, and they brought the colt to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, they set Jesus then on the donkey. And as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd, they said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then he answered, I tell you, if these are silent, the very stones they walk on will cry out. Verse 41 says, and when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that might make for your peace. And now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And this is the word of the Lord. Why don't you all grab a seat? As I mentioned, this is the beginning of what we commonly describe as Holy Week, otherwise known as Passion Week. The word passion basically means suffering, the suffering, the week of Jesus' suffering. Some um, scholars would argue that the week of, or the season of Jesus' suffering would actually predate even this. 
But this seems to be the main idea. This is the culmination, the climax of Jesus's ministry. In fact, all gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chronicle for us sequence of events in this uh, last seven days of Jesus's life. Um, each gospel account might focus a little bit more on some elements of it. Like, for example, Mark or uh, Matthew focuses more upon the parables and the teachings of Jesus. Luke as well. Mark is pretty quick and truncated. He's more about facts. He's like, you know, this morning Jesus went out here. Or this evening Jesus went here. But what you have is sort of the sequence of events that chronicle for us the last few days of Jesus's life. Which is shocking. As I was uh, even kind of thinking about this, in the New Testament alone, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what we know about Jesus, the majority of what we know about Jesus comes to us through these writers. Um, in fact, if you were to take a, a collaborative uh, look at all of the chapters that are combined of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's like 89 of them. Out of those 89 chapters, 30 of those chapters, just get this, 30 of those chapters focus on just these seven days alone. A third of the entire life of Jesus, he was about 33 years old when he died. A third of his entire life is summarized by these writers. For whatever reason, they feel this is such a significant part of Jesus's life that they will spend a third of all of their ink upon this particular sequence of events of Jesus's life. It's one of the reasons why we're wanting to take some time to slow down, to think, to meditate, to consider What's happening on these days of Jesus' life? What I want to look at here this morning in this little passage that we just read um, is just really three movements. And I'll just kind of label them and I'll backtrack and look at each one of them as it kind of plays in the sequence of events that we just read. Um, each one of the gospel accounts actually tells us this account of Jesus entering into the city. We, we typically would call this Palm Sunday. Though some scholarship would argue maybe it wasn't even really on a Sunday. I'm, I'm actually going to lean towards the scholarship that would point to that. This probably did happen on a Sunday. Um, but the point that I want to make is that whatever the case is, Jesus is entering into the city that's without question um, of consent on every level, that this is what's happening. Jesus is doing something. So I want to look at three things. Number one, we'll look at the action of Jesus. Number two, the expectation of what I'm just describing is Jesus's fans. He's got a bunch of fans. His popularity has grown. He's an influencer. He's got a lot of fans and they have opinions about him. We'll look at that. And then thirdly, we'll take a look at the emotional condition of Jesus because Luke tells us something about Jesus that no other gospel account tells us about. Jesus pauses and does something. Uh, we just read it, but we'll kind of revisit that. Number one, let's take a look at the action of Jesus. Um, so what we started out with in our reading was this little section out of the book of Zechariah. And then we saw, hopefully you were able to uh, put all that within your mindset, that what Zechariah stated. Now, again, in context, it's probably important to note that Zechariah was written hundreds of years before the story of events even played out here. So if you notice, well, there's a similarity between what Zechariah, hundred years prior, several hundred years prior to the sequence of events that takes place in the story that we just read, um, then you, you clued into the facts that, that what Jesus seems to be doing is what we might describe as street theater. And I don't think there's anything, you know, wrong with this describing it that Jesus is actually enacting. He's playing out a sequence of events. He's reenacting 
in theatrical form. The prophecy. Now I want you to think about this. In Jesus' life, predating Jesus, there are all sorts of prophecies about Jesus. Prophecies, for example, about where he would be born, how he would die, things that he would say. What's unique about Jesus' life is that there's a lot of things that Jesus could not have enacted on his own. In other words, he just slipped into his, his birth in Bethlehem. The Bible's pretty clear. He was born in Bethlehem. There's no way that he was able to stage that. There's other sequences or prophetic elements from the Old Testament that look forward to that, hearken forth of, of a character, an event, somebody that will come in. This is why the little passage from Zechariah is so crucial. In fact, I'll, I'll read it again just so that you can have it fresh in your mind. It says this. This is a prophecy by this person many, many years, hundreds of years prior to Jesus, looking forth to a moment when somebody will come. Now, the big question, obviously, in every Jew's mind is, is who is this somebody? Who is the one that will come? Well, here's what Zechariah describes. Rejoice. So he, he tells us the emotion that we're supposed to have. Rejoice. Be excited. Be happy. Because, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold your king. Your king. So this is a prophecy to the people of Jerusalem saying, hey, get excited, get happy, because your king will come. How will he come? Well, it gives a few adjectives. He describes him as being righteous, having salvation. He's humble. And then there's one little detail that's really important. He'll be mounted on a donkey. Fast forward to Jesus' life. He tells his disciples, go into this village, go get a donkey, mount it for me. I'm going to go into the city of Jerusalem on the back of this donkey, and let's all get excited. Why? Jesus is doing street performance. He's reenacting a scene. Why? Because he's making a claim through his actions. And his claim is pretty profound. In fact, everybody gets it. Everybody gets it so much so that even the religious leaders are like freaking out because that's what religious leaders do when they sense something not going according to their micro-managed form of life. They're like, Jesus, tell these people to stop getting excited because they're blasphemous. And Jesus says, look, if I tell them to stop getting excited, the very stones, which is a pretty rocky area, these very stones are going to begin to sing a chorus of my praise. So the action of Jesus, I think, is really important. Um, and I would even add that don't be shocked by the whole street performance thing because prophets were known to do this. For example, Jeremiah did this. Ezekiel did this. You know, one of the prophets, they walk around in their, their underwear for a long time. The big idea behind that, you're like, you're like, you're like that's shocking, walking around in his underwear. Why is he walking around in his underwear? The big idea was to portray, hey, Israel's naked. And I'm, I'm an embodiment of Israel, and I'm walking around naked. The big idea is that we're, we're walking around in shame, and we need someone to cover us. You might say, well, that's shocking. That's the point. It's kind of like a, uh, a comedian. George Carlin, they say things that are shocking. Well, that's the point. That's the point of parody. That's the point of the onion. That's the point of the Babylonian bee. It's shocking. Because there's something about that type of performance that 
that causes us to look at the world and the conditions and the brokenness and the injustices that are there to say something needs to happen that brings about change and transformation. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. But he's also making a pronouncement about himself that I am the one for whom Zechariah prophesied is the king entering into the city to do something. This is really important because this plays in the very next thing that we'll take a look at. And I'll even throw in there for a freebie. John the Baptist was also one of these street performance guys. You say, how? Baptisms. What was the baptism all about? Well, baptism was a reenactment of what? The Exodus. This is John the Baptist's way of saying, hey, let's all become Exodus people by going through the water. That's exactly what happened. God freed the people of Israel. He brought them through the Red Sea, out the other end. It's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. It's the big idea behind that. It's like John's saying that, look, we are, we are a new Exodus people by whom God has separated from this past life of oppression and destruction into a new life whereby our lives now belong to him. So Jesus, we see in terms of his action, is living out this prophecy. Secondly, I want to take a look at the expectations of Jesus's fans. So you can describe him as Jesus's fans or, quote unquote, friends. His friends, right? I say that because in today's world, we have fans and friends. And, you know, on social media, you have friends. You might have hundreds of friends, thousands of friends. If you're an influencer, you got thousands. You're well-known. But are they really your friends? I mean, in some ways, the whole idea, the whole definition of fans and friends has kind of lost its meaning because really your friends are not necessarily your friends. They might watch you from a distance, but are they there for you when you're at your lowest? That's, that's the whole, you know, I don't want to go down that path. But you get the idea. Jesus had a lot of fans, and these fans had expectations of him. So here's the fans. We're told in the story. They're laying down palm branches for Jesus. They're shouting. They're excited. The big idea of waving palm branches uh, probably had its history in the ancient people of Israel. But the point of the matter is, is there's an excitement. This is a supercharged moment. Again, if you know anything about the moment of season that Jesus is now going into Jerusalem, this is the season what we would call Passover. Uh, this was a freedom festival. It's kind of like our uh, 4th of July. It's a way in which they celebrated. It was a declaration of their independence. Passover was all about God defining a people that were once slaves to the oppressive militaristic world superpower called Pharaoh and Egypt. And he set them free from that oppression to become his people alone. It was a freedom project that God brought about. This is their time to reenact the freedom act of God by way of this action of Passover. So the city would swell. Hundreds of thousands of Jews from all around the country and literally all around the world would come into that region and it was, it was sketchy, man. If you were a Roman soldier at that time, they put you on double duty. You were working triple shifts. It was your, I mean, you were tired, all right? At the end of the day, you're working a lot of hours because you never want to make, you, never, you always want to make sure that there's peace in your city. And there was, you have this like, I mean, think about the riots that took place on the Capitol building. That's, that's Israel right now in Jesus' name. Everybody's excited. There's an expectation. And not only that, now there's a person that everybody's hopes and anticipations are being focused upon. Here's Jesus. He's the embodiment of the King, the Messiah. Now this raises the big question. What did they think about? What types of expectations did they have with regard to the King? 
Now, it's important to understand that even though God, throughout Scripture, gave a profile, a picture of what the king would look like. Again, if you are familiar with that passage that we read in Zechariah, he says, Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion, for your king. And then he goes on to describe, he's righteous. He brings salvation. And he's humble. That's a shocking word. Humble. Humble is never the word that you use to describe Pharaoh or Caesar or any type of world militaristic superpower king or head. But this king, Jesus, this king that Zechariah prophesies is going to be humble. Jesus is coming into the city humble. But the religious leaders and Jesus' fans have a profile in their mind that they expect. Because you got to understand again, up until this point, before Rome came in, Israel was relatively a free nation, meaning they could do what they wanted, how they wanted. But for the past many, many decades, they're not free. And the reminder of that lack of freedom, every single time you as a Jew walk down the center street of the ancient city of Jerusalem, you realize, oh, there's another Roman guard and there's another Roman guard. It'd be like you walking down the street and there's a, there's a, there's a soldier standing there with an Uzi in his hand. Imagine being in Afghanistan. Oh, there's another American soldier. There's another American soldier. There's another soldier from another country. We are not a free people. We think we're free, but we're free only as long as we comply with the power structure that's there in play right now. This is the Jews. Everywhere they look, there's another Roman soldier. They were always under this threat of the boot of Rome being thrown in their neck. This raises raised a really big challenge for the Jews throughout Jesus' day because there was always this big question. It was both a theological and a political question that they were wrestling with. I think the question probably went something like this, even though I'm just, I'm giving you my opinion, my thoughts on this. I think the question probably went something like this. How will God, how will God confront and challenge the oppressor? In this case, who is the oppressor in the mind of a Jew? It's Rome. How will God overthrow the oppressive world militaristic superpower, Rome, and the injustice and the evil that they bring, ultimately bring liberation to the oppressed, and ultimately bless the temple? So to put it in short, I I think the expectation that these fans of Jesus have is he's going to come into the city as king, he's going to go bless the temple, Because that's what you do. The temple is sort of the heartbeat of the Jewish people. And he's going to curse the big bad enemy, which is embodied by Rome and lived out by every Roman soldier and every Roman artifact and every statue and every, every Roman coin that symbolizes Caesar's image. Everywhere they look, there's always these reminders. We are not a free people. We are under the yoke of a heavy oppressor. So like I said, the political and theological question, every good Jewish fanboy of Jesus is asking, how will God do this? Right now, as they are marching into the city with Jesus, the king literally living out, rearticulating this Zechariah passage, you can imagine the level of their expectation just rising. In fact, I think I would go so far as to say that probably what's on the mind of every single Jewish follower or fan of Jesus in that moment is the king will come and he will crush our enemies. He will bless the temple. 
and he will free us from our slaves, free us from our oppressors. This is what this Jesus will do. They're waiting for Jesus ultimately to like rip off his shirt, reveal the big M on his chest. I am the Messiah King. He's the military might. He's the chief warrior who's going to come spill the blood of all of the Jewish enemies. But as we know, because we're reading this story for the most part with the story already in mind. Jesus had a different agenda in mind. In fact, what we're going to find out this week, beginning tomorrow, that one of the very first things that Jesus does is he actually goes to the temple, and instead of blessing it, he pronounces a curse upon it. He cleanses it. We call it, he cleanses it. But what's he really doing? He's actually cursing the very fabric that the institutionalization that it has become. It has become a failed experiment. It was intended to be a house of prayer. It's become nothing but a den of thieves. So Jesus curses it. And as far as the enemies are concerned, one of the very final words that Jesus says on the cross, as the Roman, who's the embodiment of the world militaristic superpower, is pounding a nail into his very hand, Jesus says, Father, forgive him. You're not supposed to bless them. You're supposed to curse them. He's the evil one. Apparently, Jesus didn't get the memo. Which leads me to the final thing. Is Jesus' emotional status that Luke tells us. No other New Testament writer tells us about, but Luke does. And this is shocking to me. And, and I, hopefully, it'll be shocking to all of us. Because sometimes we need that shock. Because that shock rouses us. Shock is actually better than apathy. <laughs> I think, I think part of a problem in reading Jesus is we read a domesticated Jesus. We read a Jesus that we're comfortable with rather than one that shocks us. Jesus really is shocking, and he should be shocking. A Jesus that is always in compliance with my inhibitions and understandings maybe is one that I'm not reading correctly. But here we see Jesus. We're told that as he is on this geographical area called the Mount of Olives, I, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish we had um, a screen that I can show you an image that I took right there from the Mount of Olives, probably believed to be the very spot where Jesus is looking over this valley, through the valley at the actual city itself. Um, and as he's, he's pausing, he stops, and Luke tells us, that in this very moment, verse 41, as he drew near to the city, he wept over it. This word wept in the Greek is actually interesting. Um, it means literally a guttural sob, a wail. I'll give you a couple ways in which this was appears. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. Here's another one. When Peter realized... That the prophecy that Jesus makes, hey, before the crow crow, or the the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And all of a sudden, Peter realizes, oh my gosh, I have denied Jesus. I did the very opposite thing that I said I was going to do. Peter realizes, and one of the gospel accounts tells us that Jesus makes eye contact with Peter right when the cock crowed. And it says that Peter wailed. 
which makes sense. This strong, burly, masculine dude failed his own word, broke his own oath. He's deeply, deeply in pain, and he weeps. Here's another example. It says in Mark chapter 5, verse 58, it says, And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus commanded the people uh, who are weeping and wailing loudly because someone had died. Another one, it says that uh, a woman's child was dead and she's weeping. Imagine, how would you as a mother feel emotionally knowing your child is gone? It's not just going to be a light sob. It's not just a drop here or there. A moist eye. It's guttural. This is the word that's used to describe Jesus. I don't think there's any street performance going on here. I think this is the raw emotion, not only of Jesus, but who is Jesus? Well, up until this point now, we already know that he is the embodiment of Yahweh. He is God in the flesh. So you can ask the question, how does God feel and think when he looks at humanity? Now, what's Jesus looking at? We're told in the story that Jesus looks at the city and he realizes, he says, man, I wish you knew that this moment is the moment that would have made for your peace, shalom, wholeness, integration. But he recognizes instead what will end up happening is an alternative ending because he knows in AD 70, many Jews will revolt against the world militaristic superpower. They will be fed up with the evil that they've been subjected to, the oppression. And the way that they will deal with the evil is through the instruments of evil. And Jesus knows if you deal with evil with the instruments of evil... The only ending of that particular story is death, destruction, and bloodshed. And he realizes, my people, they will choose a course of action that will not be consistent with my course of action. They will revolt, they will pick up sword, and they will be the ones that will lose. And Jesus weeps. Because he realizes if in that moment his people would have adopted his way, they may have been spared. And I think this raises an important question. I want to finish with this thought. That Jesus comes and he reveals himself to us in ways that might be different than how we think he should fit a profile. And what I would suggest to us is that you and I as human beings... You know, it's, it's popular in today's world to be spiritual, to talk about, I'm spiritual, and I meditate, and I think about God, and I think about life, and I think about good thoughts, and good vibes, and, but the point of the matter is, is that, that sounds good and all, and that's definitely probably better than dropping mushrooms, or, you know, going out and doing really bad, violent stuff, but the, at the end of the day, that's different than what Jesus offers, what Jesus invites us into is a way in which we orient the sum total of our lives around him, which means that there will be occasions we have to drop and depart from our preconceived ideas, our profile image that we think Jesus should live up to. 
And if we don't, if we hold on to a profile that we think Jesus needs to fulfill and live up to, what we will ultimately end up doing is we will craft a God according to our likeness and our image. And the problem with that is on the one hand, it will never save you. I mean, when the rubber meets the road, when the pain comes, when the difficulties arise, when an injustice attacks you, when oppression is there, when guilt, anxiety, pain, stress, overwhelmingness is just lingering, it cannot save you. And in the long run, it will only bring destruction. And I think over our collective lives, Jesus looks at that and says, I just want you to know the peace that I alone give. And for us to receive that will require us to let go of maybe some of our profile images that we have or expectations that Jesus needs to fulfill and receive a revelation of who Jesus is based upon what he says. That might be offensive to some of us. That might not neatly fit into our theological constructs. But that's okay. Because this is what Jesus invites us to receive. The fact is, is the New Testament writers tell us about a God who loves us so much that he himself becomes weak and experiences pain alongside of us. He's not a God that portrays himself as one that is independent from feeling pain. Why is that so important? Well, I think John Stott, one of the great writers of the past hundred years, said this. He says, I could never believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is immune to it? Think about that. That's what Christianity is. That's what I'm, that's what I'm selling to you today, though I'm not really selling. I'm trying to communicate It's an invitation to say, worship this God. And you have every right to ask the question, why should I worship this God? It's totally fine. Because if you're going to give yourself away to something, you should ask the question, what's in it for me and what is it required of me? Well, the response from the gospel is that you have a God that's giving himself to you. Not by giving you all the answers but by saying, I will come alongside you in the midst of your suffering and pain and suffer with you. This is what Jesus is doing as he moves from Palm Sunday through the sequence of events to the cross. Is he showing us a God who's not immune to pain? He doesn't always give us answers to the pain. But what he does show us without question, A, he's not immune to it. B, he's with us in it. Now, a God that says, I will come alongside you in the midst of your pain is a God that hopefully you and I can come to some agreement and say, let's give ourselves to that God. So in closing, as we wrap up this morning, I think the final question that we should be left with is this question of, What path will we take? A path whereby we hold to our preconceived ideas of the profile that we think Jesus should live up to or would we be willing to scratch that profile in exchange for the one that Jesus gives of himself?
that we are just in the same place as those 2,000 years ago. If we are not careful, we can hold on to a Jesus that's, that's an American patriot Jesus, or that's a social justice Jesus. And we hold on to these images that we think that Jesus should live up to. And at some point, that Jesus might have some resonance with those ideas and ideologies, but at the end of the day, will break away from that entirely. And when it does, when he does break away from it, will we still be holding on to that profile or will we be following the person? That's the invitation that Jesus calls us into, which requires this process of repentance, meaning turning away from our false notions and faith, meaning we turn to the one who's given himself to us in suffering on the cross. So in closing, I want to invite us to stand. We will sing together. We will partake of communion together. We have some ushers that will be handing out the communion elements. So um, as they are handing them out, feel free, if you would like to participate with us, um, receive the communion element as they hand it to you. Uh, Just hold on to it, and we will partake of it together. And my invitation to you is no matter where you're at, for you to think about what are those areas in your life right now that maybe God is inviting you to say, let go of that notion. That thought, that mindset, that construct that you had about me is one of your own making. Let it go. It may be painful to let it go. Just like it would have been very painful for Jesus' fans to abandon an idea of a warrior king who's going to crush the head of the Roman oppressors. But at some point, they needed to. And at some point, they had to. And instead, what they were given was an image of a God that would suffer alongside them, for them, and then empower them to be a whole new type of person that was able to, rather than crush the enemy, to love the enemy. This is the message. At the end of the day, this is really good news. Because what the scripture teaches is that all of us, by virtue of us holding on to, clinging to these false narratives, we set ourselves in opposition to the one who brings peace. All of us. Some of us have far worse notions and ideas of God than others. But the point is that they're all by themselves. They mislead us. So therefore, we're we're all enemies of God. And yet the story of the good news is that this God actually loves his enemies. He invites his enemies to the table to receive of his goodness. So I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll partake of communion together. And we'll wrap this up. Jesus, thank you for the cross. And so right now we humble ourselves to you. God, we take our collective notions and ideas and thoughts and constructs and narratives that we have presupposed that you should fit into. And we just lay them at your feet. And we humble ourselves. And we just, we confess that we want to be like children, learners, disciples. That want a renewed understanding of who you are based upon how you've chosen to reveal yourself. 